TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp Five, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he always is, is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, if you don't start talking in the next five seconds, I'm going to take my phase pistol and shoot you in the ass. Well, rude. <laughs> Jeez, I'm just I'm just sitting here waiting for you to finish talking so I don't interrupt you, Chris. There, no need to get violent. Good night. Simmer down, Nitro. Come on. They've given us they've given us 30 seconds to get talking. The government told us we got to start talking and, and then get off the planet. Come on, okay. we got to go. I'm I'm a getting. I'm a getting. So, <laughs> I'm so glad to be here, Chris. Is there anything else I should say before we get this party rolling? I just hope that you're good at climbing. I do enjoy climbing, actually, uh, rock climbing. It's uh, It's been a while, but it is a really enjoyable experience. And it's also, I would say, too, it's actually kind of scary as well. So I would think so, yeah. yeah. All right. We're going to talk about the breach today, everyone, which does involve some climbing and some caves. This is the 21st episode of Season 2 of Enterprise as we continue our 20th anniversary rewatch. And here's a quick rundown of the episode. When the new xenophobic government of planet Xantoris orders all off-worlders to leave, the Enterprise is called upon to rescue Denobulan geologists trapped in a cave. While Trip, Malcolm, and Travis go spelunking for scientists, the crew bring aboard some injured Antarans from an alien ship suffering a reactor leak. It turns out that the Antarans are enemies of the Denobulans, and one of them, a xenomythology teacher named Hudak, refuses treatment from Dr. Phlox, who must confront centuries-old prejudices and strive to mend the wounds of the past. So, Matthew, we've got a good classic Star Trek story here, where we're looking at conflict between two sides, but... Before we get into that aspect of the story, which will probably be our main focus, what did you think about Spelunking for Scientists? Because this really brought back memories for me of growing up in the 80s and playing Spelunker on my Commodore 64. <laughs> I, I thought that this was a really interesting idea as a, a B-plot here where we're, we're on a planet that is very interesting to all of the people around it. It's bringing in all groups from many different races because they have these caverns. They seem to have things that are interesting for resource-wise and all of that kind of stuff. But it's also an unstable planet when it comes to its government. You know, seems to be changing hands apparently every five minutes. So this idea, too, of, of having these scientists, these Denobulan scientists that are geologists looking into these caverns for these rare minerals and rock formations and us as the enterprise having to go and rescue them i did think was fun and it also i think that i really enjoyed the way that it kind of plays out as well just if you've ever heard a scientist speak or talk especially those that are completely wrapped up in their experiments or completely kind of wrapped up in their own little world of their scientific community they they seem to have a hard time 
relating to people. And, mm-hmm. and so just having this this group not completely understand the ramifications mm-hmm. of what's happening and, and how much danger that they are actually in, I, I thought was funny and added, of course, a, a lot of levity to a episode, which is actually very heavy on the mm-hmm. other side. And yeah. so, yeah, I actually thought that this 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 worked and it allowed us to kind of explore and and do some things that we really haven't done a lot before in Star Trek which is to to see them adventuring mm-hmm. like doing we've seen Enterprise go camping before but it's been a while since that's actually been the case so I really enjoyed watching them do these types of out, outdoor activities and in all honesty I thought it was kind of interesting that they really haven't changed all that much when it comes to uh, the type of equipment that they use. It's very mm-hmm. similar to all the equipment that you would see us use for the most part. So, Right. Well, that's where I think it's very well done, where the designers remember where this show is on the timeline and, right. and don't go overboard with making things too futuristic. One of the it, we're late in season two now, but one of the goals of the show, of course, was to make it easier for us to identify with the characters that we're seeing on the screen. Right. This this evolution of our current space exploration into what would become the Starfleet that we know in the future. And so, yeah, things like this make a difference. And actually, it stood out to me just the framing of the shot where they're entering the cave. There was something mm-hmm. about maybe what they're wearing what they have with them, but just also the framing and the way it is shot felt more like something that I could see myself doing Mm -hmm. as opposed to if I think about a next generation episode, for example, where they might go to a cave or or Voyager episode Mm -hmm. where you really feel like that's on another planet. It's off in the future. And here it just was, it felt more natural to me which probably sounds silly to say because, of course, it was shot here on Earth, but it's still the capturing it in the storytelling. Robert Duncan McNeil directed this episode, and and uh, I think he did a great job of capturing that feeling. And then mm-hmm. as for the story, I mean, scientists, yeah, they're often, like you say, not very good at interacting with everyday people and explaining things or breaking free of the world of their work, which is why when you find someone who can, like Carl Sagan, or these days like Brian Green or Neil deGrasse Tyson, people like that, really stands out because they really know how to uh, communicate science to you in a way that makes sense and is engaging. And then these scientists, they're all about their minerals. There's one that if you don't look at the spelling of it and you just hear it on screen, one thing they're looking for is aragonite. And it sounded a bit like oregano. And I thought that sounds like it'd be really tasty on some <laughs> Denobulan pizza. It probably would be great. Uh, I, in, and I, I think what you called out was was really important here. They don't go overboard with trying to make this too futuristic. We don't have any of the characters using rocket boots or anything like that, yeah, right. which and would make more sense with this this kind of depth that they're going to. But I also, you just, I, I loved the idea of 
seeing how dangerous this still is. I mean, there's it's very difficult yeah. to make this less dangerous unless you have something like rocket boots. And there was another instance of, of Travis getting hurt. Yep. And I appreciated this too. They're sliding down this section of the cave and the fact that he stops them, it's it's not that like movie thing where, oh, I stopped you and I'm not going to break my leg doing this. No, he breaks his leg doing mm-hmm. this because of the force. So I, I really just appreciated there. Again, there was a lot of reality to this part of the story, which I thought was really well done. And mm-hmm. so, and again, it, it did allow us to have a more humorous story here when the rest of this is definitely anything but humorous. Yeah. You said he broke his leg because of the Force. Now, this is not a Star Wars crossover, right? Yes. There wasn't uh, someone hiding behind a rock. Yeah, not that Force. It's the, okay. the, 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 yeah, the Force of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, trying to stop two people with your leg. Um, so, Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's move on to sort of the heart of the story, the bad blood that is going on between the Antarans and the Denobulans. Are you sure they're not singing Taylor Swift here? Uh, because that's all I'm hearing in my head right now. <laughs> right. So they bring these aliens aboard the Enterprise. And of course, Archer doesn't know at first that there's this animosity between the Antarans and the Denobulans. But we get into this kind of classic Hippocratic Oath story and doctor-patient relationship where you've got someone who's refusing treatment because of something completely unrelated to their situation or their condition, something related to the relationship between their planet and that of Dr. Flux, a conflict that was 300 years earlier that's been perpetuated through stories that have been passed from generation to generation where each side is teaching the other side to hate each other, hate one another. And according to Hudak, the Antaran here who won't accept treatment, the Denobulans killed more than 20 million Antarans during the war. And that is why he just cannot, even if he dies, he cannot accept treatment from Dr. Flux. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is Star Trek- at its most classic in the sense of that we are going to deal with the idea of preconceptions. And, you know, I think what's most interesting about this is that these are people who have not seen or heard from one another for the last 300 years. And yet they still harbor these resentments as if the war happened yesterday. And, It's obviously much easier to do that when you are separated by light years. And I love the the episode and and the way that it deals with this of these two people coming together. And what's great about this is that one, I think we absolutely get a chance to spend more time with flocks, which is great to deepen the understanding of who the Denobulans were. I appreciate that what we see here is that the Denobulans were not always the people that they are now, which is 
Another thing where they are a more enlightened species at this point, but there was a time when they weren't. This is also something that we actually use to answer a question of what had gone wrong between Phlox and one of his sons. Mm-hmm. That's been mentioned previously, and now we mm-hmm. finally have the answer as to why their relationship is so strained. And more importantly, I mean, this this episode, I think, adequately and wonderfully explains and shows how crazy it is to hold on to this type of prejudice and or preconceptions about a people for this amount of time, as if nothing has changed in 300 years. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a good call out to us because I, I think Archer says it best. I like to get my information firsthand. Mm-hmm. And that's what we should be doing in our lives, with everyone, right? Yeah. We can't yeah. just keep painting with these these broad brushes. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. Archer saying he likes to get his information firsthand because, yeah, that's how you need to find things out. Because if you just rely on what other people tell you, and if you just, whether they're actually telling you, like if it's in the case of parents teaching their children to mm-hmm. believe one thing about another group of people, children will naturally listen to their parents. And maybe as they get older, they will start to have different thoughts when they have an opportunity to go out and learn firsthand about someone, if they're willing to do it, which they may not be willing to do if they've been brought up to vilify the other side, right? right? And to be fearful of them. Though, Though there are people who will take that step and I mean, my my own experience was interesting. If I just think back to this, it's it's not the kind of animosity, of course, that we're dealing with with this episode. But being American, having grown up in the 70s and 80s, at the height of the Cold War, we, like you had the same experience, I believe. You're a little bit younger than me, but not so much. The idea that the Soviet Union was this huge enemy mm-hmm. that that we should hate and and vilify. And that's all I heard. But I became interested in like, why? Why do we have this image of them? And of course, I knew history and the events that had happened. But just thinking about the fact that on the other side, there are other people like us. Right. And then I had the opportunity, you know, to go live there and and to meet people. And I remember being in the countryside, drinking vodka with someone who had been a soldier in World War II on the Soviet side. Mm-hmm. And of course, we were allies in the war, but that was for particular reasons, not because our ideologies were the same. Right. And just being able to do that and just see people for who they are made a huge difference in the way I viewed the world as I grew up. And I was about, that was 1991. So that was... I was about 19 at that point. So, you know, it's still an influential moment or period of life for me. And so having that curiosity is something that I had and, and that helped me, but it's not something that everyone has. And right. many people don't have the opportunity, even if they were interested, they don't have the opportunity to get to know the other side. And that's a lot of what we're seeing here. And the other thing about this story is that when you're dealing in science fiction, where you've got two sides that are on different planets, 
and they really don't need to interact with each other, it's very easy to just perpetuate oh, this myth, right? And, yes. And the last thing that I'll just throw in there, which might be a springboard for you, I found it interesting that the occupation of this Antaran Hudak is that he's a teacher of xenomythology. Mm-hmm. And I thought the choice of making it xenomythology was really nice for the story because these are myths that they're building up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the idea of him studying the stories to which help create a society's ideas about things and reinforce those ideas is fascinating. And, of course, like you said, the what's what's interesting about the way in which especially the antarans but but even some denobulans are continuing to act is at as if 300 years hasn't passed mm-hmm. and yeah. like you said perpetuating a myth that these people are still the exact same as they were back then so it is it made it interesting then for flocks and him to be able to break down those barriers and i really appreciated that flocks was able to do that and be and want to do that even though part of his upbringing had been one to be told these stories and to be fearful and yet he rejected that fear and then raised his own kids to not hear those stories and to not try to give them any preconceptions about who the Antarans were. It's it's to put it in a really silly way, I've always been annoyed with with parents of of geek descent, right, who are really big geeks. But then they want to pass on their own preconceptions about what they love to their kids, especially, Mm -hmm. say, in like Star Wars, right? Mm -hmm. My generation was the generation where so many people hated the prequels. And so many parents have have passed on that preconception Mm -hmm. and notion that the prequels suck to their own kids instead of allowing the kids to experience it for themselves, right, Mm -hmm. And, and decide and What's funny is, you know, most kids respond very well to the prequels because of the way that they're crafted, the story that they're telling. And, of course, you've got the Clone Wars and all that kind of stuff, which even exemplifies all that. So, all that to say, that's a silly explanation of the way in which we kind of do those same things, Mm -hmm. right? Even unintentionally. The only way to move on is exactly what Archer says, which is to have firsthand knowledge of people mm-hmm. and get to know who they are now. And and this is one of the places where I actually really appreciated the show because there have been times on the show, of course, where humanity is learning and growing and, and kind of being taught things. But I thought that this was a kind of a beautiful moment where humanity got an, an opportunity to shine. Archer specifically got an opportunity to shine and to be the voice of reason. And I, I love the way I think that Enterprise has done a great job of 
balancing that idea of that, yes, there are plenty of things that we as humanity at this point needed to learn as we're going through the show. Mm -hmm. But there are also many good things about humanity that we can also teach others as we're out there. And so I, I just, again, to me, that was really a wonderful, I think, part of this episode. Well, that juxtaposition of Archer and Flocks that you bring up there, I think is really important because overall in this series so far, Flocks has been more the voice of reason, I would say, because the Denobulans are more advanced than humans. They've had more experience with other species out in space. And we get those like a lunch chats often actually with Flocks and T'Pol where Right. They talk about things in a way that shows that their understanding of things is more evolved overall than where the humans are at this point. But here is a moment, like you said, where, yeah, Archer is more the voice of reason. Archer is telling flocks, look, you figure it out. Get over it. Figure out how to make it work. And that was, yeah, it was nice to see. Mentioning flocks, I do want to say one thing that really stands out to me in this episode is that John Billingsley just hits it out of the park with acting. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, really well done in this episode. No, I, I could not agree more. And I think one of the most uh, interesting things to me is that he felt a little bit discombobulated uh, with this mm -hmm. episode, feeling like it it kind of came out of nowhere for him and the idea of this for the Denobulans and even flocks having this type of struggle. But again, I, I, I rewatching this episode in, in all honesty, it's not one that it was in my mind. I didn't mm -hmm. remember what happened in it really. So getting a chance to almost re-experience it and, and having so much of this feel fresh. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that this actually didn't come out of nowhere again, I, especially because of the way we take this story in and allow one of the key elements be his relationship with his son, which has gone sour because of this specific part of their history and that he's gotten kind of radicalized about. And so using that, it was this, to me, felt organic because we had already planted that seed. And it, and it also, I, I think, really brought to light something that is in many ways I think even more important now than it was then I think this idea of radicalization and the way in which children get radicalized mm -hmm. and parents have to deal with that and to me that was absolutely phenomenal to be able to see that happen because I think there are many parents in, in today's society which are dealing with that themselves mm -hmm. and it's a hard thing to deal with in all honesty to watch mm -hmm. your child choose that type of make that type of choice to believe those type of things yeah well it's especially easy for that to happen these days with influences coming from places where they would not have so easily in the past because of the internet and mm -hmm. social media and so sure. forth. As parents, you have a lot less control over, not that you should control your kids, but as a parent, one of your jobs is to 
guide and nurture your kids' minds as they grow and and right. hopefully make them well-rounded people, but yeah. well-informed people as well. And sometimes the information coming in these days is in, it's designed to manipulate them. And mm-hmm. yeah, and oh, know, yeah. their minds I mean, are absolutely. not mature enough to process that yet. And so it's very dangerous. Talking about John Billingsley, going back to that for a minute, and whether this came out of nowhere or was it out of character, the comments that he's made about this episode, some of them come from an interview in 2004, so it was very close to when this episode was made. So maybe his views could be a bit different these days, but he said that he thought that it was, he said, it's understandable that the writers would try to find some more conflict for the Denobulans because, or for Flocks, because Flocks had been created to be like a, a Zen-like character, very placid character. And he said that, I think coming up with an episode where Denobulans were once war criminals, there was still the credible anger that had not been resolved. It seemed to me at least, and maybe to some fans too, to be a little too jarring, a little too difficult to jive with what we knew about flocks and also that it had been alluded to in the first season that he'd been a medic in the denobulan infantry but he said there were aspects of the script that didn't quite work for me i think if if i really dig into it though and i think about what they're doing here with the character i think you can have a character who seems to be very zen like seems to be very calm, very thoughtful about things. But, you know, most of us have, there's something there that maybe we've had to come to terms with that could be triggered again uh, if uncovered. And so I think that having something like this in Flux's past and having something like this between the Denobulans and another species really helps to make the character of Flux more well-rounded because if he's just this wise alien all the time who has worked all his stuff out, right? he is a less interesting character. And also, right. I think that his ability to counsel Archer or be there to help guide Archer as the humans make their way through out into the galaxy is lessened mm-hmm. a little bit if he doesn't have this kind of struggle. And the fact that the denobulans might have some denobulans anyway might have been war criminals they're not right. saying flocks was a war criminal they're just saying that some denobulan military officers were i mean that's a reality of life i think that virtually any military in a war is going to have people who might be accused of yep. committing some sort of atrocities because it's part of human nature, and when you feel like you've been freed up to act on that because of the situation of warfare, some people do. I mean, we're seeing that these days with what's happening in, in Ukraine. So, Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, and I think you're right on target to say the character, I think, would have been much less interesting if he never had any room for growth and i think that's also one of the things that they realized about the vulcans in the series as well Mm -hmm. is you you needed these main characters if we're going to be exploring who these people were a hundred years or so before we met them well that there would be 
opportunities that you could take for growth and to make them more interesting and make them less monolithic. And so I think those are all things to which Deep Space Nine really did such a great job of. And I think Enterprise continues on that trend in that way of making sure that the alien species that we we spend time with have a place to go and that it's it's worth spending the time with them right instead of so much of what we saw in Mm -hmm. many of the series which was they were always the same and not much really about them changed and every time you pulled an alien out to use it you kind of put it back in the toy box basically the same way you found it Mm -hmm. and enterprise is is not doing that so I, i appreciate that but I, Chris, we, we really actually haven't talked about the most important aspect of this this episode. Are you talking about the special guest star? Yes. The the absolute I mean, I could not believe that they were able to get this guest star. It absolutely <laughs> blew me away. And that little fur ball and the what, maybe thirty-five seconds of screen time was the mm-hmm. absolute star. It was, yeah. It was so nice to see a triple here. And not a triple that makes a guest appearance for some kind of plot contrivance, as we saw in the Star Trek Into Darkness, when Bones has a triple that he's doing (laughs) experiments on for some reason. And then later, of course, it becomes important. But anyway, yeah, no, it was fun to see little triple here. I'm surprised that we didn't see triples any other time in Enterprise, though. I'm just wondering if they should have had more. And within this episode itself, what if it had turned out that the Denobulans were actually down in the cave gathering triples and the cave <laughs> was full of them? That Yes, that would actually have been very interesting. But I mean, I just <laughs> love the fact that this triple is dumped into a cage to be eaten by another one of, of Phlox's creatures, which it just kind of reminded me of the cow being put into uh-huh. the cage for the Velociraptors in Jurassic oh. Park. And so, but no, I, I thought that this was fantastic. And, and just, a, a, again, this is one of the ways in which you can do something fun with an Easter egg like this and, and not have it overtake the series. So, no, that was, I, I appreciated that. I thought it was really fun. Well, any final thoughts and what's your rating for this one? This is an interesting episode because I think the episode does such a great job of actually discussing the themes itself within itself that it doesn't leave a ton to say, but that doesn't mean I don't think it's a very good episode. I was actually struck, like you were saying, with how good the portrayals are here, especially by John Billingsley, and I think that... Scott Bakula is excellent in this episode. And so I I would actually give this episode a four and a half out of five half-eaten triples. And so uh, Phlox's creature likes to save the other half for later. Uh, But yeah, I think this is actually a really, really good episode of the season. Yeah, yeah, same. I think it's, it's good because, like you said at the beginning, it's classic Star Trek. We're taking one important issue and we're exploring it with two characters and it's not flashy or anything it's dialogue it's really talking about it in a meaningful way and one thing that we didn't mention earlier when we were talking about 
children and such that I did appreciate in this episode is that Flox explains how he taught his children and that he was determined not to raise them yes. in the same way that he was. And this is when he's talking to Paul and Paul says, your children are fortunate to have a father who taught them to embrace other cultures. And I just, that was really the core of the whole story for me. And I'm glad that was in there. So I'm going to give this one eight furry tribbles because I just think there should have been more. All right, everyone, we would love to hear your thoughts on The Breach. There are many ways for you to share those with us. Perhaps the best way is to go to Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That is our listeners group. It's there to extend the conversations beyond the podcasts. So it's a closed group. If you're joining for the first time, please answer the questions and agree to the rules of the forum so that I can let you in. And when you're in there, you'll see a post for this episode of Warp 5 on the timeline. You can share your thoughts with Matthew and me and fellow listeners there and extend the conversation. And if you're looking for the Babel Conference, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If not, just type the whole name, the Babel Conference. You can also send us an email. Go to our website, trek.fm slash contact. Use the form you find there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to Matthew and me by email. And of course, you can find us in social media. Our username everywhere is trek.fm. And if you'd like to help us keep Warp 5, our 20th anniversary rewatch, and everything we're doing on the network going, we could definitely use your help to find out how to support the network, help us cover the costs of producing and distributing the podcasts. Please visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. We would not be here without the help of everyone supporting us. So thank you so very much to all of you. Thank you very much. And lastly, if your podcast app of choice allows you to leave a rating and a review, we'd love to get that from you as well. Now, Matthew, when you're not spelunking with Travis Mayweather, where can people find you? You can find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network talking about all things geeky outside of Star Trek in the 602 Club. You can also find me doing literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek. You can also find us doing Chris and I, The Orb, as we've got the 30th anniversary rewatch of Deep Space Nine happening. Not only that, you'll find us doing Saddle Up about Strange New Worlds, which we're excited to have return here in June, as well as the artificial tango as Star Trek Picard is starting to wrap itself up. Then you'll also find me over on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One is a completed show called Owl Post, all about Harry Potter. We did every single chapter of that series, one chapter at a time. And then aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But Chris, if people want to see what you and your triple friend are up to, where can they find you? <laughs> well, we're multiplying, Matthew. Oh, That's what we're doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking lessons from the trip. No, no. If, if you want to find me when I'm not doing what I'm doing today, we're recording this right after part nine of Star Trek Picard dropped. And therefore, today I am dodging spoilers until I can watch it. But once I've seen it and I can go back on social media, you can find me under the username C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That is my username everywhere. Twitter is where I'm most active. I'm also on Mastodon on the Trekkies.social instance, and I'd love to chat with you there. 
And then in terms of podcasts, of course, you can find me here on the network doing all those shows, Matthew, with you that you've mentioned. Also, Larry Nemechek and I do The Ready Room from time to time. And you can find me on lots of episodes in the back catalog. And if you listen to the back catalog, feel free to drop us a message about those anytime as well. We get listeners who have found episodes from 10 years ago, Matthew, and sometimes it's the first time listening and they come back with some wonderful insights. So we'd love to hear from you on those as well. All right, Matthew. Well, we're getting close to the end of season two. And next week, we've got a really interesting one coming up with Cogenitor. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. Well, Chris, I can't wait to dive into that. So let's go. 